The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, January 21st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. For those who don't know me, my name is Raymond, and I'm also one of the pastors here. I serve alongside the other elders, and uh, it's always a privilege to to be a member of this church and, and to serve as one of your pastors. Do me a favor, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to two places. First, Haggai, the very beginning of the book of Haggai, very near to the end of the Old Testament there, and, and also the book of Ezra, very beginning of the book of Ezra. We are actually starting a, a four-week series this morning that will take us through the book of Haggai. Haggai is a very short book, two chapters. It's, it's the second shortest book in the entire Old Testament. Only Obadiah is shorter. And so we'll be, we'll be walking through Haggai. Uh, and we, we refer to Haggai as one of the minor prophets. Now, not minor because his message was less important than the other prophets, but minor in terms of the amount that he had to say. When you compare, the, let's say, to a major prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah. So Haggai or Haggai, as some of you say, I, I, we're going to be walking through that for the next four Sundays. Um, but what we want to do more than anything is remember what's most important to God as we do that. God wants to speak to us. Every time we gather like this and we open this Bible, we have the privilege of doing so, God wants to speak to us and he wants us to listen. That's where we begin. He wants us to listen. He wants us to grasp something from his word that will give us the opportunity to become a little bit more like his son Jesus. And that's, that's what we're here for. So if you, hopefully I gave you some time to find Ezra and Haggai, Haggai, go ahead and I'll just say Haggai for the rest of the morning. But go ahead, let's open up there to Haggai chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. I'll pray and then I'll read those for us and then we'll, we'll see what else God wants to say. Father, we do ask that you would open our ears and our hearts now, that you would speak to us through your word, and that you would take your word all the way into our hearts, where, where your word has the power to transform us, to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in his name, and everybody said, amen. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Father, help us again to listen and and to consider our ways as we listen to what you have said so long ago through Haggai and other prophets. And we ask this in your name again, Jesus. Everybody said, 
Amen. Today, we just want to set this series up. We're going to set this series up and prepare to walk through it over the next few weeks. And and to set it up today, we kind of want to zoom in on verse 2. Zoom in on verse 2 and then ask ourselves a few questions. So as we look again, look at at verse 2 for me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord. We want to zoom in on this verse to ask ourselves, who are these people? Who is it that Haggai is actually speaking to? What are they going through? What's their story? And how perhaps are we similar or like them? Who are these people? Secondly, why are they saying, that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Why are they saying that? And and lastly, why is Haggai's response to them, this was spoken over 2,500 years ago, but why, why is Haggai's response to them still a timely word for us? All right, so who are these people? And before we answer that first question, I, I, I want you to look at verse one again. Did you notice? I, If you believe what I believe, then you you believe nothing in God's word is there by accident. Did you see how specific Haggai was with the date of this message? That's not always the case with the prophets, right? Thus saith the Lord, but they don't get this specific. Look at Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Now we know who Darius is. This was one of the Persian kings. So after Cyrus and Ahasuerus, there came Darius. This is the same Darius that just 30 years after Haggai spoke would actually find himself in a battle with the Athenians in a a city called Marathon. One of those famous battles where after the Athenians defeated Darius and the Persians, they sent a herald to run some 25 plus miles back to Athens to declare their victory. That's why the marathon is, well, it used to be 25 plus miles. But then in 1908, Queen Alexandra of England, she, she insisted that the race start right on the royal lawn of Windsor Palace and end up right in front of the royal box in the, in the stadium. And so that stretched it out to 26.2 miles. So Lindsay, the next time you have to run that last mile in a marathon, you can thank Queen Alexandra. That distance actually stuck. But, but this is my point in saying all of this is this. This is real history. Now, a lot of people like to criticize the Bible and, and relegate it to something of superstition, myth, legend, stuff that, that only people who, who are superstitious or ignorant would actually believe. No, this is about a real God acting in real time in the lives of real people just like us. It's always been that way, and, and, and it's no exception here. So when we read Haggai here, he, he, all of a sudden, in, in, in his own way, he tells us this is real history. In fact, we have no reason to doubt the scholarship of those who have told us. Not only did this occur in the year 520 B.C., we know that. But because Haggai was so specific, we can now say it occurred on August 29th of 520 B.C., by the way that we keep our calendar. But if we're going to answer our question about who these people are, we'll have to go back in time just a little bit. 
And for starters, we're going to go back 18 years to 538 BC and to the very beginning of the book of Ezra. Turn there, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, we're in 538 BC, and Cyrus, known as Cyrus the Great, the great king of Persia, he's in power. They had just defeated the Babylonians. So the very Babylonians that God had used to take his disobedient Israel into captivity, into captivity, they were now overpowered by the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. And Cyrus the Great, having conquered them in 538 now, is issuing a decree. And that's what we're about to listen to. That one geopolitical event where the Persians now conquered the Babylonians would change everything for the nation of Israel and would move things along again in the, in the direction of God's plans and purposes. So here's the decree that Cyrus issued, and we know this is 538 BC. In fact, we even have what we call the Cyrus Cylinder. It's being held in a museum in England, where in Babylonian cuneiform writing all over this cylinder, you can look it up for yourself. It's sitting right there, this very decree. And it was made not only to the Jews, but to many other nations that had been taken captive by the Babylonians. Cyrus, in a sense, says, I want you all to go back to your homeland, those of you who are willing and able, and I want you to go, and if you need to rebuild your temple, Jews, do that. Uh, go back, rebuild everything, develop the infrastructure, get lots of tax revenue for the Persian Empire. And, and by the way, just to cover my bases while you're doing that, uh, I don't know how powerful your God is, but, but pray to him for me. That's what he says. Now let's, let's read it. Here it is, Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might proclaim or make a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. We got it now in London. Verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And then verse 5, we get a description of the people that Haggai will address. Just 18 years down the road, Haggai will address these people. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Who are these people who just 18 years later, as Haggai speaks to them, are saying it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord? They are the same people who just 18 years earlier had their very spirit stirred up by God to go back and do that very thing. Do you see that? 
That's who we're talking about. These are people who were very motivated by spiritual interests, things that were very much on God's heart. So much so that they were willing to get up and leave the only home they'd ever known, to go back to Jerusalem and build a temple for the name of the Lord, for his fame among the nations. That's who we're talking about. These people are spiritually motivated people. Again, they're younger than 70 years old, no doubt, and so none of them has ever lived in Jerusalem, the homeland of their ancestors. They grew up in Babylon. That's all they ever knew. They had spent their time there during the captivity, but they, they would have known their history as God's people. They would have listened to their parents and their grandparents, and some of their relatives would have actually been there in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 B.C. and burnt it to the ground. They would have been taken away captive, and they would have had to start their life in a whole new part of the world amongst a people that didn't know them, didn't know their God, and didn't care very much about their God. But it was different, it was different than the time when Israel was in Egypt. There they were enslaved and forced to do hard labor. Here under the Babylonians and even more so under the Persians, they were able to live pretty much as free people. They could conduct businesses, they could own businesses, they could conduct trade. They were there in in what was at that time the number one economy in the world. They they were on the busiest and most prosperous trade route. Life in some ways was, was, was good. But there was always that thing. They knew their history. They knew who they were as God's people. And they long to return to their homeland, many of them. But that's who we're talking about. These were people, again, who were motivated to go back and serve the Lord. They would have heard promises from their parents and grandparents like that spoken by Jeremiah. This will sound familiar to some of you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. You ever seen that on a bumper sticker? The situation Jeremiah was speaking into was interesting. Uh, You go back one chapter, and in chapter 28, there's another prophet named Hananiah. And he is speaking to God's people who are in captivity in Babylon. And he's telling them, I know in some ways this is not ideal. We're not where we're supposed to be. But don't worry. Within two years, we're going to get out of this place. God is going to break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, and and we're going to get out of here. Don't worry. And God went to Jeremiah and just said, look, I heard what Hananiah just said. I didn't send him to say that. That's not right. You're going to be here for a while. And Jeremiah, unfortunately, had to go to Hananiah and say, look, Hananiah, you didn't prophesy. That you prophesied. <laughs> and <laughs> where's Brian? Brian, that, that's, uh... yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, but, 
He said, no, Hananiah, I, I didn't send you to say that. That's not accurate. You made my people trust in a lie. And, and, and look, my people aren't going to be moving. They're not going anywhere right now. As for you, though, you won't be here in Babylon or, or anywhere else for that matter in, in a very short time. And within two months, he was dead. Yeah, we don't, don't play around with God's word. And within two months, he was dead. And Jeremiah had to correct the record and he spoke to them in, in, in chapter 29. He said, no, listen, that's not how it's going to work. We're going to be here for 70 years. God, is, God has determined that a long time ago so that the land will have its rest. All the Sabbaths you didn't keep, it's going to take 70 years to, to, to correct that. All the stuff Manasseh did, I, I saw it. I was, I was forbearing, but, but now is the time to take care of that. It's going to be 70 years and I'm not changing my mind. So settle down. Get married, raise your families, get wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, grow up here in Bab- for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And my plan is the one that will prevail. You're going to be here for a while. All right, so it's, it's not as, you probably wouldn't have made a bumper sticker about that if, if you knew what it meant. But now that you have the bumper sticker, you don't have to get rid of it, just keep it. But that's, that's what's going on here. Jeremiah corrects the record there. And, and these children growing up in Babylon, these Jews would have known a day is coming where God's going to keep this promise. He always keeps his promises. And, and, and he's going to bring us back to our own land. And even before Jeremiah spoke, there was a prophet, you would have heard of him by the name of Isaiah. About 100 years before Jeremiah Isaiah had this to say in Isaiah chapter 44. These Jews in Babylon would have heard this as well. Isaiah 44 verse 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all these things. Who alone stretched out the heavens. Who spread out the earth by myself. Verse 28. Who says of Cyrus. He is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. 150 years before Cyrus would stand up to give that decree. God named Cyrus through the prophet Isaiah. Israel had not even been conquered by the Babylonians yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would come first. Then they would be taken captive for 70 years. Then the Persians would conquer the Babylonians. And it just so happened that the name of the Persian king that would be at the forefront of that was Cyrus. And God saw all of that well in advance because everything is present to God. And it's nothing for him to take a small part of the knowledge that he has of the future that he is creating by his will and to show it to one of his prophets and say, go tell my people this right now. It's going to happen in about 150 years. Our God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And so, he issues this decree through Cyrus, but can you imagine being one of these Jews, however old, you're growing up in Babylon, you're hearing about your history and your religion and your faith from your parents and your grandparents, but you're, you're a young child, and you know, it, it's, it's your faith, but it's your parents' faith, it's your grandparents' faith, and, and you're, you're kind of in that place where you're thinking, is it my own faith yet? And then one day, as you get nearer and nearer to this 
time where the prophecy, this prophecy is supposed to be fulfilled, you get closer and closer, and then all of a sudden, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. Right as God says, it's about time for you to go back. And the name of the Persian king who conquers the Babylonians is Cyrus. And then you hear Cyrus stand up and say, we can go back. And see, see, this is where, I want to say to some of you kids, Abe, this is where you realize everything my, my, my mom and dad told me is true. <laughs> everything my grandparents told me is true. Right, Simeon? Everything they said is true. Your faith begins to come alive because you've lived to see God move in your life. And it's added to what your parents and your grandparents have told you. It was no less real when they told you, but you didn't know that. But now, you're ready to pass it on. And, and the people who would listen to Haggai, who would be saying it is not time yet to rebuild the house of the Lord, are these people whose spirits and hearts were stirred up to immediately get up upon hearing that decree and to move. They were the people primarily motivated by these spiritual interests. They were willing to leave the only home and the only life they had ever known in order to see the plans and purposes of God advance in and through their life. They were willing to leave what for many of them was a prosperous life. A prosperous life to go and start over in a place that would require about five minutes of dangerous travel just to get there. But they were so motivated and excited because as they went, that not only did they, I'll show you in a minute, they had 200 singers with them, that always helps. But, but as they went, can you imagine the sense of pride and the sense of their heritage that would have been there as they realized we're traveling the same route that Abraham traveled in Genesis 12. When God said, get up and go to a land that I will show you. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees right next to Babylon. And he traveled the same route to that land that was now theirs. And there was no better time to be a Jew. The last time anything like this happened was the Exodus part one. And here it was part two and they were moving back. That's who we're talking about, a people so in tune with their heritage, their faith, so motivated by zeal for God's purposes that they were willing to go and make this journey. They were willing to sell their businesses and move far away from the best trade route that was ever there. Some of them perhaps to have to relearn agriculture and how to get by doing that, right? This would be a whole new way of life for some of them. These were people who were extremely sacrificial in their giving. Look, look with me, if you would, at Ezra chapter 2. Are you still in Ezra? Talk to me. Is, are you still in Ezra? Look at Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2, near the end of that chapter, verses 64 through 69. Here's what we see. How many of them went back? Verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were just over 7,300. 7,337 to be exact. And in verse 69, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61 derricks of gold. 
Now I confess to you, I don't have the first clue what a derrick is. Or I didn't until I googled that thing, right? The, that's what we do nowadays. It turns out that a derrick is about a quarter of an ounce. Now I know what an ounce is, especially after watching uh, Nate Bargetsy's SNL, you know, George Washington thing. You, you got to watch that. <laughs> Our completely random system of weights and measures. Back in the spirit. So 61,000 derricks of gold, about a quarter of an ounce, divide that thing by four, 15,250 ounces of gold at the current spot price of gold right at about $2,060. I should have kept some of my gold, but I didn't. That's about $31.5 million of gold that came from these people for the work of, the God, of, of, of carrying out the work of God, the plans and purposes to build his temple in Jerusalem. $31.5 million of gold, and they gave silver as well. I'll save you some of the math, but it turns out that a minna is about 600 grams, and at the current spot price, that's, just take my word for it, about 2.5 million. $34 million, this is a, a good phase one to a capital campaign. Fred, you could buy a lot of chairs uh, with, with, with that. $34 million of sacrificial generous giving from these people. These are people who are motivated to see God's plans and purposes move in and through their lives throughout the whole world. They are generously and sacrificially giving. They are taking a dangerous journey to uproot their lives and start over in a new place. These are people who have the kind of zeal for God's purposes and a commitment to see him known throughout the world that would be right up there with any of the modern or former missionaries that you and I have read about and hold in the highest regard. These are exemplary people of faith. And yet, 18 years later, they're saying it's not time to do the very thing that God put us here to do. Why? That's what I want to talk to you about with our limited time. Why? What has happened to them? And has the same thing happened to us? That's where we're going. Well, Ezra chapter 4 happened to them. Let's look at Ezra chapter 4 verses 4 through 5. Then the people of the land, we share this place with a lot of people. Uh, your surrounding culture is not always hospitable to Christian living and Christian faith, to living as the people of God. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They were afraid. They were afraid of the people around them, who went as far as carrying out a smear campaign against them that went all the way up to the king. They wrote a letter to King Ahasuerus at that time, or Ahasuerus, or I'll just say Artaxerxes because it's easier. Uh, whoever came up with that. So they sent a letter to the king. They complained about what they were doing. They said, you better stop this now. 
If these people are allowed to continue, it's not going to result in the tax revenues that you thought would come to the kingdom of Persia. It's going it's to rather land in rebellion. Look at their history. This is a seditious people, and, and you're next if you don't stop this right now. And the king looked into it and said, yeah, there is some of that in their history. And he issued a decree. In Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, the king said, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease. And that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And in verse 24, it says, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia when Haggai and Zechariah stepped in to speak into that moment why why did this people all of a sudden find themselves saying it was not time to continue to rebuild the house of the Lord the very thing they were so stirred up to do just 18 years prior to that the very thing God put them back in that place to do that God had planned for centuries and foretold through their parents, their grandparents, and their prophets. I'm going to give you three reasons why they were saying it wasn't the time. Number one, they were, they, I would say just like us, They looked back and they could tell if they were honest about themselves. Something had changed in their level of zeal for God's purposes. It happens over time. You don't notice it, but it happens. And we are kind of just like them in these few ways that I'll list. Number one, we too can look at perhaps times in our past where our zeal for God's purposes was higher than it is now. If your life were, let's say, your zeal for God's plans and purposes were to be put on a graph, where would that highest peak be? And would it be today? And don't feel too bad about it. This is, no, this is as we live, it's hard to always sustain that at the same place. Right? It, 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 it takes God actively coming into our lives, reminding us of things. It takes us encouraging each other. Um, but this is to say the very same thing can happen to us. They started off really well. And for two years as they gave themselves and their treasure and everything else, as they, as they did that, they got as far as, as laying in Ezra chapter 3 the foundation of the temple of the Lord. And, and it wasn't as good as the former temple's foundation, but, but it was... It was a foundation. It was good. And you could do something with that. And, and they did that for two years. But over the next 16 years, it just all stopped. You know, uh, interestingly enough, today is the 16th anniversary of Redemption Hill gathering as a church. What has this last 16-year period for us looked like to God? What of our zeal for his plans and purposes? How does it compare to when we started? What have these 16 years been like for us? Just like these people who would listen to Haggai, we too can find ourselves waning in zeal for God's purposes. To what extent do we still give ourselves sacrificially to what God is doing here? 
how do we give our time, our money, and our gifts and our abilities? To what extent do we serve our brothers and sisters here in the church and the people beyond? Am I connected to people here? How connected am I? Do I still dream of the gospel going to unreached peoples all over the world and seeing people groups that have never had access to Jesus or the gospel come to faith in him for the very first time? Does that still cause my heart to beat? Or, or am I slowly beginning to say, it, it's, not, it's not time for me to be concerned about those things. I got a lot going on. This is why when we, recently we read through the parable of the sower in, in the Gospel of Luke, if you've been following with us in the Seeing Jesus Together schedule, it, it happens over time. The, the, the seed that grew up among thorns very slowly the cares and the concerns and the worries of this world choked out the life of the word and made it unfruitful. This is how it happens. And we can be like them. In fact, at times we are like them. And we need God's help. Lord, help us. I'm not finished, but, but here's number two. Here's another way that we're like the people that Haggai will address. And we'll get to hear this over the next few weeks. Just like them, we also can, can come to a place of fear being afraid of those around us. And that fear can keep us from doing the very thing that God has put us here to do right here and right now. Uh, you know, it's easy to say the time has not yet come for me to speak to my neighbor, my relative, my friend, my coworker about Jesus. It's not time yet. I can just sense there, there's something other than God's word to me that that person wants or rather needs to be saved. There's something, there's something other than what God says to me about his power to move in that person's life the same way he did in mine. There's something else that convinces me it's just not time yet. And I confess to you, I, there is nuance here. There, 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 there is complexity to some of these things. It is true that we want to pray, as God says, for doors to be open for our message. We want that to be true for us. We want to be praying for each other, that God would open up a door for our message, Colossians 4. But at the same time, I, I confess to you, I don't always know the difference between my patience in waiting for God to open that door or my using that idea as an excuse for my fear. Right? Especially if I know I'm going to have to be around that person quite often. I, I'm good with the drive-by stuff, but I'm real bold then. But if, if I've got to see that person quite often, I, I get afraid that I might make this thing awkward. Right? And, and I can become so fearful that I'm no longer able or willing to do what God has called me to do in preaching the gospel to them that they might have an opportunity to hear and be saved. Does that happen to you? It does, doesn't it? The Lord is here to help us. Don't, don't feel condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I say this by way of opportunity for us to consider our ways. There's another way, a third way that we're like the audience, the original audience of Haggai. We, we also live in a time when our government can decide that we need to cease certain activities that are part of our normal worship of God. I, I trust your your memories go back as far as three years. I do trust. And listen again, there, there, there is nuance and complexity to this. 
One of the things I love about reading through Ezra, and I I hope you'll do this, is you'll get to watch the people of God navigate this tension where they hear the prophets speak to them and remind them in the second year of Darius, in Ezra chapter, chapter 5. They remind God's people of what they're there to do. And they begin to respond and they say, yes, let's, let's begin to restart corporate worship as God designed it. Let's begin to build the place where that will happen. Let's begin to do that. And, and then opposition comes and, and then you also see their deference and their submission to the governing authorities and how they work through the channels in their culture and submit their letter to the king and say, tell us what you advise in this matter. You'll see them working through that tension. And, and my question to us is this, what's going to happen the next time our government tells us we can't gather like this? Is it going to be a knee-jerk response to just say, well, okay? Or will it again be a thoughtful process and a prayerful process and a, as God's people, we're called to submit to the governing authorities and we, we take that seriously. And as God's people, we're called to gather in his presence and we're called to worship him as he designed and to, to be relatively free from fear and to show a freedom from fears that bind other people so that they might look at God's people and say, this is what's possible. And we hold those things in tension. And we ask God for his wisdom and we encourage one another and we help each other to discern. And I don't always have the answer for what is what. Again, when are we in a situation when perhaps the governing authorities are actually commanding us to do something God forbids or forbidding us to do something God commands? When are we in a place where we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29? When, when are we there? And how close did we get three years ago? What are we going to do the next time we face that situation? We've got to help each other think through this. Just like the people listening to Haggai, we face these things, don't we? Well, what are we going to do in response to all of this? I'll, I am beginning to close. What are we going to do in response to all of this? Well, I don't want to go beyond verse 5 of, as, of, uh, of Haggai this morning. I just want to leave us there. Haggai looks at them and says, Now consider your ways. People of God, let us consider our ways this morning. Let's think about what God is saying to us through the prophet Haggai, through others like Ezra. Let's consider our ways and then I'll leave you with this idea. Let's look to Jesus, the author and, and perfecter of our faith. See, if, if, it's, if it's a revival of our zeal for God's plans and purposes that we want, then your options are you either try to make that happen on your own by doubling your effort or you look at Jesus, whose zeal for his father's plans and purposes never waned. And you trust what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we with unveiled face, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Something happens when we look at Jesus. We begin to be transformed when we look at him by faith. God begins to transform us into his image from one degree of glory to the next. And that is what we are looking for. We are looking at Jesus about whom it was said in John 2.17. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And, and Jesus was not simply consumed with zeal for his father in a moment of passion as he cleansed the temple. 
He was consumed with zeal for his father and his father's house and his father's plans and purposes for his entire existence, for his entire life, even here on earth. And and we look at Jesus and that's how God begins to stir us to the same thing. We want to live the Christian life in greater conformity to Jesus and it starts by looking at him and listening to his word. Ah, and as we do that, as we do that, we begin to live this gospel-centered life that we talk about. You know, one person said it this way, telling someone to live the Christian life by any means other than getting them to look at Jesus is like telling them to dance while you turn off the music. Right? They can still do it. They can go through the steps. But it's not quite what it was supposed to be. It's probably going to look a little weird. Nobody's going to really be attracted to it. And you've taken away the one thing that makes them want to dance. Friends, it's the music of Jesus' perfect life that makes us want to dance the Christian life. It's the music of Jesus' perfect life that moves us from all of the things we think we should do to the things we now want to do. Our shoulds become want-tos as we look at Jesus. It's the, it's the music of his perfect life that makes us marvel at his goodness. It's the music of his sacrificial death on the cross that makes us hate our sin that put him there and want to turn away from it. It's the music of his resurrection that gives us confidence and encouragement in the face of sickness and death. It's the music of Jesus' endless patience and mercy toward us that strengthens us to extend that to one another. Ladies and gentlemen, put the music on this week. Spend some time with the Lord in his word. Let him bring you to that place where you've been before and where he'll increasingly take us even more. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, we thank you for bringing your word near to our hearts and giving us an opportunity to consider our ways and to trust you for that measure of your grace that makes us more like your son as we listen, as we trust you. And I pray that as we prepare for those of us who have come to you in faith, as we prepare to receive communion, the elements which remind us of Jesus' sacrifice for us, we pray that you would strengthen us even in that act as we make a collective proclamation as a church. For you said, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord Jesus until he comes. So we thank you for that. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.